Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of these, your people, and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have you ever noticed how easily we slip into a mentality of believing that we are most right about most things? (laughs) Or what I like to call the geocentric mentality. You recall, of course, that Galileo's theory of a heliocentric universe in which the planets circled the sun was declared a heresy by the religious leadership of his day. Instead, they argued for a geocentric universe in which the sun circled the earth, placing the earth at the center of all things. So I have come to think that the geocentric mentality is one in which we believe that the universe and all things center on me, my, and mine. Or, as the seagulls in that epic theological movie Finding Nemo put it so clearly, mine, 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 mine. (laughs) I know I don't need to tell you that yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. A day for us to remember the lives that were lost, the despair and the grief that followed. A day for us to remember the heroes who rushed in to help, many of them losing their lives. And we have come to know that the ripple effect of all that has impacted our lives and our world and continues to do so as we have watched a war that has lasted longer than any of the other wars in our nation's history. And the fears and the divisions that have evolved. I mean, did we have this much fear and hatred of people from other countries before that event? Certainly some people did, but was it so pronounced? You know, we had a chance in the wake of that awful tragedy to do something spectacular. I remember reading an Uh, an opinion uh, in the newspaper that was entitled, Bomb Them with Butter. I don't know if y'all remember that, but it was all about how we had the opportunity to help countries that were struggling, like uh, those in Afghanistan or Iraq, the places where we were most concerned with at the time, uh, feed them. Feed them instead of bombing them, you know? Um, That was the mentality of that opinion. And perhaps in this moment, after these many, many months of pandemic, perhaps in this moment, as we have watched our society grow further and further and further to the edges of political and theological and maybe even ethical understanding, to the edges we have moved, Perhaps this is a moment that we need to remember that the way we behave toward others is the fullest
purest expression of what we actually believe. And for those of us who are people of faith, of the Christian faith or any other faith, the way we behave towards others is the fullest expression of our faith. You know, uh, well, y'all know some of my, my idiosyncrasies in my daily life. I mean, you know, I drive around taking city to school or running errands or whatever, and I tend to holler at cars uh, because, because they're so oblivious. They're so oblivious to me, you know? Do you do that? You know, or, or fuss, or fuss about it? You know, I have to remember when there are kids in the car. Or maybe in the grocery store. Maybe your place is in the grocery store where somebody is hogging the whole aisle. And you cannot get around them, and yet what you need is right where they are. And they are oblivious to you and anybody else in the entire grocery store. You don't ever feel that way? Because I often feel that way. I will confess, I will confess I'm a culprit of that and much more. And, and when I think about it, when, when I'm fussy with people who are oblivious, it may be because it's how I am too. And so I get frustrated. These are, of course, laughable frustrations, aren't they? Just laughable. But consider this, an article in Consumer Reports stated that one in four Americans said they would not give up their Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts habit, even if their income dropped dramatically in a failed economy. In the same article, one survey found that Americans hold tightest to at-home entertainment. Yeah. When asked, what is the last thing you would cut back on in order to economize, 38% of people said, they would never ditch pay TV, including premium cable, satellite, and streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and, and all the others that are now streaming. It would seem that we like to be able to spend on ourselves, with the common attitude being, my comfort is my number one priority. The same type of mentality, I know you will find this shocking, this same type of mentality can often creep into our churches as well, right? <laughs> this type of mentality is being played out all over the world, in our own country, our state, our communities, oh, and sometimes in our churches. An article in the New York Times was about how we are becoming a nation of vigilantes. With the passing of the Texas Senate Bill Number 8, banning abortion six weeks into pregnancy, that was one thing. But what it also did was it allows anyone to bring a lawsuit against a medical professional or practitioner who violates the ban and that there are cash bounties of at least $10,000 plus legal fees 
to encourage such lawsuits. It is a law that is enforced not by elected people that we have chosen or hired to take care of our state and society, the state, but by individuals. And oh, by the way, before you get so down on Texas, it's not just Texas. In Tennessee, students and teachers can sue schools that allow transgender students to use the restrooms that match their gender identity. In Florida, students can sue schools that allow transgender girls to play on girls' sports teams. And there are countless bills now in various legislatures letting parents sue schools if teachers and outside speakers mention the principles of critical race theory. By the way, critical race theory is simply talking about how the different beliefs about race over time have created a, a systemic racism that is impacting not just individuals and, and, and churches and communities, but impact our whole culture. What's next? Well, you pick something. Can I sue someone for damages if they hand out water to voters who are standing waiting to vote? Can I sue an employer or landlord who allows undocumented workers to live on their property? Laws used to give us rights for people to have autonomy over their bodies, their words, or their votes. Now that paradigm has shifted, according to the New York Times article. It's inverted giving rights to people who are often offended by what they see, hear, or imagine, and that we are catering to our personal uh, offense. You know, what offends me, there now needs to be a law so I can then individually uh, right that wrong. In short, we are more and more becoming a country that is only interested in the individual and not the community or the common good. Now, as you might imagine, the Apostle Paul had something to say about that. Writing to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul uses this phenomenal metaphor to help us understand what it means to be a people who are called to care for common humanity or for the common good. The original city of Corinth rose to wealth and fame during the period of the Greek city-states, and it was known for its cosmopolitan churches and culture and luxurious temples. It was destroyed by the Roman Empire, but rebuilt by Julius Caesar. And it was a very thriving metropolis when Paul arrived in 51 of the Common Era. The moral depravity of Corinth, legendary even in the ancient pagan world and vividly reflected in the spiritual need of the city, uh, had every type, of, every type of cult in its pluralistic society. And there was also a synagogue and a large uh, population of Jews. And, and it was considered, well, um, think New Orleans, you know? It was a very cosmopolitan city, but, or Las Vegas, you know? Well, anything could happen there, you know? And, and it was all okay. So this diverse cultural hub 
you might think, would be exactly where Paul wanted to be. It was at the crossroads of a trade, uh, a trade uh, a, a trade culture that went to all different corners of the earth. So here he could influence so many people, right? If he witnessed to the gospel. And so when he hears from the church at Corinth that they're infighting and they're, they're misbehaving and they're doing all this, he writes in order to set that right, to be the shepherd for this church that he helped to start. Now, we get to this, this passage that uh, Shelby read for us today. Earlier Greek and Roman thinkers used this metaphor of the body um, to talk about interdependent members of the community. But often the ancient writers used the analogy to support a hierarchy, that the head was the highest order and that everything else was suppressed. But, you know, Paul doesn't do that. Paul uses this metaphor to um, show the importance of diverse functions that each part of the body represents and that they're all important, that all of them have gifts and that we need all of them in order to function. Gentiles, to whom Paul is actually writing and of whom we are a part, uh, Gentiles uh, were to be immersed in water and Christians had adopted and developed baptism as a public act of conversion. And Christians recognize that in this moment of baptism, God's own spirit inhabited the person being baptized. This was the power of this, uh, this sacrament of baptism. Now, one rhetorical device often used by ancient orators, and Paul is among them, was per personifying impersonal objects so that they could speak. We miss the humor in this. I mean, literally, I really do think that when the person stood up to read this 1 Corinthians letter to the people at the church at Corinth, that at this point, when it gets to the metaphor of the body, and he starts talking about the ear speaking and the feet and everybody, all these parts speaking, that people would have laughed. They would have gotten the humor in it. And we don't. We, we take it so very seriously. But, but it's kind of funny when you think about it. The metaphor of uh, the absurdity of the eyes speaking or the hands independently speaking, uh, you know, it's, it's humorous in some ways, uh, pointing to our interdependence on each other. He's using humor to capture his audience. Paul's use of honor and power language may have been used to subvert the ancient use of the body as hierarchical. But his point is made, isn't it? As he comes to the close of the metaphor, he says, all, you know, even the, the poorest parts are indispensable. And, and we need to honor even the smallest parts because they're all needed. You know, the eye is needed to see. Um, and and, you know, they say, I don't know this to be true, but if you bust your big toe, you can hardly walk, you know? So 
we need all the parts. And, and this passage concludes, we come, as it concludes, we become acutely aware that this is a metaphor. He is using a metaphor to speak about the body of Christ, the church. This is who we're called to be, to recognize that even the, the most humble of members of the church have a gift to bring. I often say, when I'm teaching about the church, I will say, you know, everybody gets a gift. Nobody gets all the gifts. Some people get a lot of gifts, and some people just get one gift. But everybody gets a gift, and we have to have all the gifts. We have to have all the gifts to be complete and whole, to be a fully functioning body of our Savior, Jesus. And again, how we behave toward others is the clearest indication of our faith. What we actually believe is most important. No doubt our world seems out of control right now. It's leaning toward rebellious individualism and geocentric mentalities, right? But we have a chance to act in a different way. We have a chance to act in ways in our lives and in our church that will help turn our church, our communities, and beyond into a culture that is committed, deeply committed to what is the common good. In our calling statement, we have said that we are called to follow in the way of Jesus, and that should be the measure of everything that we do as a church, as a community, how we operate in our own community, in our own households. And when we work for the common good, when we proclaim the common good as revealed by God in Jesus, the manifestation of God's love in human form, and when we take heed of the Holy Spirit, um, it's transformational. It's transformational. And when we work for the common good, we are living the lives God has called us to. And when we work for the common good, we are becoming the body of Christ, the church, in its best form. Now, I know that this kind of work, this kind of living, this kind of being in the world, you know, you can feel like an ant trying to push a boulder up a hill. It's massive, the problems that we face. On Thursday night in our book discussion, uh, in chapter one, Anne Lamott tells a story that her pastor Veronica used in a sermon. And it's about a small bird that's lying on its back in the middle of a road with its feet stuck up in the air. And a war horse walks up to the bird and says, what are you doing? And the bird answered, I heard the sky was falling, and I wanted to help. And the horse lets loose with a horsey laugh and snorts, do you really think you are going to hold back the sky with your scrawny little legs? To which she replied, one does what one can. <laughs> We do what we can. Some people have given their body organs 
so that other people, some of whom they don't even know, can live. There are people who work tirelessly every day to reduce their carbon footprint. I remember doing a wedding back when I was at AM United Methodist Church, and it was a young woman who had given up eating tuna fish for several years because, and she loved tuna fish, but she gave it up because the nets were killing the tunas. Right before she got married, she got to eat tuna fish again because they changed the laws about the nets. There are people who donate their time with Planned Parenthood in assembling near, uh, kits with pregnancy tests and contraceptives. There are people who give blood every time the blood banks say they're low. And our little church, our little church, we have built four water projects in Kenya. Our little church, our mighty little church, and our youth on their recent retreat, they went and worked in a community garden that uses its produce to give good, fresh produce to those who are hungry and homeless. Our little church, you know, there are all 